The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. Welcome to Know the Score. I'm your host, Don DeLorente, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dwayne. What's going on, Dwayne? Old man Dwayne here. want to say naps are vital to life. I am refreshed and ready to go and talk about the world of sports. It's been a, been a little while since we've been on. So, well, since we've been on together, because I know, I know there were some events that the speedway that went that went down so for the 600 so but it's good to be back yes yes thanks shout out to all the people over at charlotte motor speedway nascar uh that made it possible for us to uh spend the weekend there and uh do some things from the coca-cola 600 uh one of the most exciting coca-cola 600s in recent memory so you know we we got our we got our money's worth and uh, some very good content. So if you haven't checked it out, check out the CSVN page, my page. Um, yeah, there's some very good content there. Um, this is Know the Score. We are part of the CSPN. You can find us on the web at CSPN.us. Just search also for Know the Score, and it'll show up in any podcast app and subscribe. So Dwayne... We'll start with the hockey first. We'll do that hockey. Uh, Disappointing end for my team, the Carolina Hurricanes, going out in the second round to the New York Rangers in seven games, losing game seven at home. Um, Never really in game seven at all. Never really in game six or seven, really, to be honest. Um just a a breakdown in uh, structure uh, defensively uh, the New York Rangers uh, figured out Carolina's defense Carolina's power play deserted them and then their penalty kill deserted them at the same time especially in the last two games so power outage yeah so just a convergence of a lot of things to come in and doom the Carolina Hurricanes again they went through this playoff run uh, injured without their number one goalie. But I think the thing that really probably stands out with them more than any of the teams that we had left in this, uh, you know, round of uh, teams, is just that their stars did not affect the most meaningful games. Uh, Aho, Svechnikov. I mean, Aho affected game seven because he took that first penalty that led to the opening goal. But as far as um, being an offensive threat, um, you know, just rising to the occasion and playing to a level that you would expect them to play in, you know, two must-win games, uh, especially game seven at home. Yeah, they they just did not. uh, They just they just Sidney said something a long time ago. You need your stars to be stars, and they weren't stars. They weren't stars. They weren't reflective of a team that had 
116 points in the regular season. Um, and it's, they were night and day the whole playoffs, if we're being honest. Um, they should not have went seven games to Boston at all. They were horrible on the road. They did not win a single road game in this postseason. They did not, and they took that lack of energy from the road to that game seven at home. And and it was a very, very fraudulent performance um, from a team that had such high hopes. And they're not the only frauds in this uh, postseason. Um, here's looking at you, Florida Panthers. Um, we'll get to them in a second, but this was very disappointing because I think they had the right, they could have won the president's trophy easily. I think they decided to go towards resting their guys for the postseason run. And even then, I think the games that their stars had took a rest along with the physical as well. And with the number one goalie being out, uh, it's always next man up, especially in this game of hockey and in this hockey thing when even with the next man that steps up, there's been there's been epic um, – playoff runs from back of goalie. You talk about Jaguar in 03 with the Ducks. You talk about Cam Ward in 06 with the same uh, franchise. Um, both of those were, they were both back of goalies that ended up taking their teams to the cup. So I definitely think that Carolina had, Ranta was, he was superb um, in stepping up when he needed to. I don't think he got enough help in in either round. And then when you have he was even a better goaltender in the Bruins series. But I think when you come up against uh, Shashirskin on the Rangers side, that's just a whole nother animal. And I don't think they had enough in the end, especially in that must-win game seven. You didn't see the desperation from the Hurricanes that you saw from the New York Rangers. Um, as you recall, I did not want to play the Rangers. I was very much mm-hmm. hoping that Pittsburgh would win because I did not want to face uh, Igor uh, in a long series because I knew he would get better as the series uh, went on. And uh, that definitely was the case. Uh, they move on to the other side of the Eastern Conference playoffs, the Atlanta. where mm-hmm. you have uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning just wipe the Florida Panthers off oh, the yeah. swept them yeah. out of the playoffs. Number one seed gone. Mm-hmm. Um, just President's uh, Trophy winners. Something that I did not, or I don't think a lot of people saw coming, thought this was going to be a long series, but Tampa Bay was like, nope. We are going to go sit at home and rest up. So uh, right. what did you see there from Florida that led to their demise? I just think they – first off, the President's Trophy, I don't care what anybody says, that President's Trophy is cursed. Because anytime 
a lot of times when a team wins that president's trophy, it does not work for it does not end up working out for the winner of that trophy at all. But I think what Tampa Bay just did, they I think they just overwhelmed them with their speed mm. and their playoff experience. Um and Florida of course they got a they got the Washington draw which was you know, at first, because, you know, the Capitals are battle-tested as well, but um, they ended up finding a way because they the Capitals had Ovechkin and Carlson, but a lot of those players were just as inexperienced playoff-wise as the uh, Panthers were. However, when they came up against Lightning, you know, I, I thought it was going to be a more competitive series. Um but Tampa Bay just has a lot of speed, a lot of experience. Uh, Vasilevsky is the best goaltender in the game in the postseason. He's proved it two times over. Um, and this was uh, when you have Steven Samko's Braden Point, Andres Palat. It's Nikita Kucherov, of course. You can't leave him out. Too much, too much for uh, Florida to overcome. On the defensive side, um, you know, you feel bad for guys like Claude Giroux, Joe Thornton, who've been, especially Joe Thornton, I mean, this was year 25 for him, and, you know, that cup is still eluding him from a Hall of Fame career. Um, Claude Giroux, who was the longtime captain of the Philadelphia Flyers, um, he was a Flyer lifer, and, you know, the Flyers put him in a great position to, um, have an opportunity to win the Stanley Cup with the best team, and they fall short. Um, he's going to be a free agent, so it's going to be interesting to see if he wants to try to run it back with the Panthers or go elsewhere to try to get that cup. But um, just too much, too much speed, too much experience, and Tampa Bay was just very motivated to get get that rest and go on to the Eastern Conference Final. Right, right. Uh, over in the uh, Western Conference, we had the Abs and the Blues. Uh, that went to six games. Uh, Very competitive. With the Abs winning there. And then in the Battle of Alberta, we had the Edmonton Oilers overcoming the Calgary Flames. Uh, just talk about what you saw from... Edmonton, man, I thought that it was a real good, uh, you know, real feel-good story for them to advance yeah. to the Western Conference Finals. Uh, you know, Connor McDavid getting a real chance to go far in the playoffs. Throw a real spotlight yes. on him. Yes, definitely. Uh, Connor McDavid won the uh, best uh, young stars in this game. And, and Edmonton, not only that first game was an epic battle, like – uh, so many goals in so many goals between the two teams. Um, you really love the fact that that um, and I'm going I'm trying to go back to it. Yeah, 15 goals between them. Uh, Calgary won the first game, so you you figured it was going to be a a big time shootout, but Edmonton. They bounced back. They got that home ice in game two. And then, uh, and then, uh, 
they took advantage of that home ice when they got back home. You know, you you wanted to see a star like Connor McDavid, uh, Leon Dreisaitl, Taylor Nugent Hopkins, um, the get Evander Kane, and you know he ended up fitting into that uh, mold very well after all his troubles and tribulations uh, from San Jose. But he he ended up playing very well in the series in the series as well. Um, and Mike Mike Smith, I think he did a great job in between the pipes. Um, and just a great great job. I mean, Kane had Kane had uh, through the third game of the series, he actually had ten goals in the postseason. So. He played very well, um, but I I think in this series, Calgary they came in as the uh, they came in as a favorite to win the series, but I think Edmonton just had enough. They have a lot of firepower on that offensive end, and they used that defense after game one. They they tightened up on defense and ended up getting. Getting the uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Getting the series win. Mm-hmm. And then in the Colorado series, um, I think going into the series, I thought the Avalanche had the advantage. They proved that in the they proved that and throughout the. Um, Throughout this series, I, I really was impressed by by their um, ability to not only on both sides of the ice play good offense, good defense. Uh, Nathan McKinnon, um, uh, Kadri was pretty good as well. Um, but I also like how St. Louis stuck in the series. They took a game at home. They tied the series at one. They took another game in Denver, which I did not think. I thought the Avs would probably be unstoppable in their on their home ice, but but St. Louis they were very scrappy in the series. I thought maybe they could get one at home. All three of their four losses were actually on their own home ice. Uh, their two wins actually came in Denver. Uh, so they were zero three in on, on the home ice, and but Colorado they found a way to get it done, uh, moving on to the Western Conference Final and setting up that matchup with the Oilers. Western Conference Finals, grand opening, grand closing. It is a wrap, folks. Colorado Avalanche sweep the Edmonton Oilers. So the. Colorado Avalanche are sitting back waiting uh, f- uh, for the Eastern Conference Finals to wrap up where the Tampa Bay Lightning, after going down two games to none, won game three, so critical game four is happening tonight, a uh, little over an hour as you record this. As you see the matchup, uh, it's getting ready to take place. Uh, Tampa Bay looked like they were probably maybe 
one period away from maybe getting the same fate as the Oilers getting swept, but they rallied in the third period and mm-hmm. uh, and won game three. Uh, right. Are we going to have a tied-up series at the end of this evening, Tampa Bay uh, rallying at home to tie the series up? I believe so. Um, I'm going to say until I'm proven otherwise on this home ice, I'm going to go with Tampa Bay. Uh, You know, I'm going to go with Vasilevsky. These guys are the champs for a reason. They're, uh, like I said before, they're battle-tested. They they have – they have the pieces. They have what it takes to um, continue this run. And even even as tough as it is, it's tough to win two in a row. It's tough to win two in a row under the circumstances. It's even tougher to win three in a row. And could Tampa Bay get fatigued and tired out towards the end if they go a long series? Perhaps, but they did sweep the Panthers, so it kind of does balance itself out. I want to, I do say that I want to stick with Tampa Bay in this series. Um, I think they'll get a game two, a game four win to tie the series at two, and I do think they can steal one on the road in at the Garden, and then uh, close it out in game six. So I'm going to say Lightning in six, and. And uh, they'll find a way. I'm, I just can't bet against Vasilevsky until they're out of the playoffs. <laughs> Pretty much, uh, you don't want to uh, tug on Superman's cape. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, who do you see giving the Avs the tougher matchup? The Avs have been the most impressive team all season so it is really no surprise that they got here maybe with, right. the, with the sweep and the you know Western Conference Finals that may be surprising you think that Edmonton like I said with all that firepower may be able to get you know one game but their goalie just could not hold up uh, I don't yeah Mike, yeah Mike Smith um, I mean he gave up the, the Oilers gave up eight in game one they gave up six in game four they like I said, they they have the offensive firepower to keep up but not overcome. Uh, Colorado is the more complete team. Um, I I think even if we go into the Stanley Cup final against the Lightning, they have the Avs have the advantage in this one. Uh, this is their first Stanley Cup uh, final since 2001 when they won their third uh, Stanley Cup. And I, you know, they built this team from the, they built this team from the ground. Uh, they developed their guys. Uh, they, they made this a, a destination team now. So I'm thinking Colorado is the heavy favorites because they're complete on both sides of the ice. They play great defense. They can either put you in a situation where you're not going to score any goals, or if you do score a lot of goals, they can either match it and beat you with it, just like they did in the Edmonton series. They also did it in the St. Louis series as well. So 
Colorado is a more complete team. Um, the stakes are going to be higher. Uh, and if it's the Rangers in Colorado, they have the advantage on the goaltender side. I do think Igor does have uh, what it takes to kind of stand up to that firepower, as does Vasilevsky. Uh, but Darcy Kemper on the Avs, he is very underrated as a goaltender. Uh, so it's not as big of, a, of an advantage as one would like to have. But I think Colorado has more offensive firepower, especially against the Rangers. I think they can – I think Tampa Bay can make it competitive off the determination of trying to repeat as the champs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Colorado is definitely the favorite here. All right, all right. Well, it will be interesting to see if they can bring it on in, you know, best team during the regular season, best team during the playoffs, see if they can win that Stanley Cup. New York Rangers fans, you know, they are just salivating for this chance to play in the Stanley Cup finals, and then we're going for First three time in a since row. since 94. Three in a row for the uh, the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning if they're able to get into the final. So there will be enough storylines to go around uh, once we get to this year's Stanley Cup Finals. And uh, depending on you know New York and Tampa Bay, it could be sooner than later, or it could be another week from now. So we'll right. just wait and see. Stella. Final starts on the 18th. So um, there is that. Going to transition over to the NBA Finals. Uh, Eastern Conference Finals went down to Game 7, finally had a close game. Boston survives, running almost running out of gas in Miami late. Jimmy Butler shoots a transition three-pointer that clings off the front of the rim, and Boston goes on to secure the win and move on to the NBA Finals where they will face the rested Golden State Warriors. And uh, we had a very entertaining game one. That saw the Warriors uh, start fast. Steph Curry, I think he made six threes in the first quarter. Six or seven. Uh, had 21 points, I think, in the opening quarter. Uh, he did. Kind of, you know, landed the opening haymaker. Boston stumbled, gathered themselves, and uh, had the game close. I think it was a one-point game at halftime. And then the Warriors came out and hit them again with a knockout fury in the third quarter. But Boston, That's the Warriors thing. Boston stumbled. They got a stand-and-eight count, but th- but they didn't go down. And then they came out landing their own haymakers in a historic fourth quarter where they made nine threes as a team, scored 40 points, held the Warriors to, I think, 16, and ended up with a 120-108 win in game one in just a shocking turnaround that nobody saw coming. Um, I was actually doing podcasts, saw the Warriors were up big at the end of the third quarter. It's like, oh, they do what they normally do. Then all of a sudden, I refresh, and we're like three minutes into the fourth quarter, and Boston's only down like six points. Like, what the hell is going on here? Right. And then you realize that they're just unconscious from three. Uh, Derek White, Marcus Smart, Al Horford uh, really did a lot of the heavy lifting for Boston uh, throughout that whole game one, uh, picking up the slack for Jason Tatum, who did not shoot well, did not impact the game with the scoring, but he did have 13 assists. 
definitely yeah. a career high for him. Um, so, you know, trying to affect the game in other ways. Um, then we shift to game two, which took place on uh, Sunday, where the Warriors again, with that classic third quarter uh, barrage, got a lead, and this time they held on for the 107-88 win over Boston. Uh, Warriors defense was on another level. Tatum and Brown were able to score most of their points for the team, but Al Horford, uh, Robert Williams, and Marcus Smart combined for six points, the other three starters um, in that particular ball game. So a lot of people will say that, oh, well, okay, Boston did what they came to do. They got one game. You know, but after game one, you know, everybody's like, oh, my gosh, the Warriors are in trouble. Boston shooting and defense and blah, 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 blah. And then here comes game two, and it's like, oh, well, you know, the Warriors did all this, and Clay Thompson ain't even playing that well. So, you know, Boston, they better be careful because Trayvon Green is being able to get in the heads, and they look rather soft. And. I just hate how, you know, everybody is just so caught up in the one game to game. It's like, let the thing play out a couple of games at a time before you have these, you know, these takes. Yeah. Yeah, and here's my thing, and, you know, to really kind of address game one. When... First in game one, Boston did all this with out, like I said, without um, without um, Tatum doing well, and and also um, he had thirteen assists, which and that was due to the Warriors just double teaming him to start off with. So when you double teaming him, you're going to you're going to get that ball out to the open man. There's always going to be a man open when you double up. So, of course, when you have guys that are on like that, your role players that are on, that's what's going to happen. And also, in that game one, Boston took care of the basketball, and they did not do that at all in game two, which is why which is why Golden State ended up having that um, huge third quarter. I mean, we expected them to have that third quarter because that's just what the Warriors do. Um, but when you take a look at at the turnovers from uh, games, games one to games two, Boston had – 12 turnovers in game one. Uh, the Warriors had 14. In game two, um, in game two, it was a different story, obviously. Uh, and I go to the box score here. The Warriors had, um, Boston had 18 turnovers compared to the Warriors having only 12. So 18 turnovers is definitely not going to get it done uh, when your other starters only have six points. Uh, Jalen Brown also kind of faded in the stretch as well. Um, 
he started out hot. He ended up five for seventeen in that one. Um, Derek White was four for thirteen from the field, and and you know Boston shot forty percent from the three from the field overall. They were only they were only thirty seven percent from the field. Um, and you can argue the fact also, you can't argue the fact that Draymond probably should have been ejected in, uh, in that game. He should have got second tech, but uh, for whatever reason, he didn't. But it's, you have to just really look at, I think as a Celtics fan, you know, and even when, even just from a player's perspective, I'm sure they can't wallow in what happened in game two. They got, they did what they had to do. That's the seven. They got at least one. So now you got the next two at home up, up uh, with the series tied. You have a chance to go to the garden um, with the mystique of the garden. Uh, the fans in Boston are going to be juiced up for this one. It's the 22nd NBA Finals that's been at the Boston Garden, TD Garden, North Station. Uh, North Station's hosted uh, both North Station area, basically. So I, I do think Boston's going to come out, energize. Um, they're going to have to not let Draymond's antics get, because that's what Draymond, Draymond's an agitator. He's that's what he does, and they have to not let that man get in his head, get in their heads, um, and you know you can say you can say that they've done this without Clay. I mean, they have other guys that have stepped up. You can't discount Andrew Wiggins' contribution. You can't discount uh, Jordan Poole's contributions. And, you know, Steph Curry's going to – Steph Curry, regardless, he's going to get his. Um, I think even when they were up big, just um, – get Clay was just in there just getting reps, basically. Uh, and he still was not on. So you got to wonder, is, is he going to be able to find it? Shot, which, as with any shooter, you're always going to find a stroke again. Like, once you see one go in, that does give you confidence. So, um, I know the Warriors are probably going to tell them to keep shooting, but I think Boston has a good chance to, if they can repeat what they did in game one, they weathered the storm two times and you got to say that even in that first quarter when the Warriors, Steph Curry at 21 in the first quarter and Boston was only down by four points. That is unheard of. And then I think the Warriors, they didn't take the Celtics as serious in game one. They got the haymaker. They're like, okay, we actually got a series. So. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a dogfight the next two games the next three games actually and if necessary four or five so um, 
hoping that Boston comes out ready to go in game in game uh, three, and it's going to be a very crucial game three, and we just got to see what plays out the rest of the way. Game of adjustments. It's going to be. These are two Steve Kerr. I mean, excuse me, Greg Popovich disciples, and uh, Udoka and Steve Kerr. So you know that the adjustments are going to be um, very key from game to game. The strategy of what's going to go on. I thought that um, in the first game, especially in the fourth quarter, there uh, the lack of inside scoring from a post player really hurt Golden State. They were getting a lot of drives and getting a lot of jumpers and runners in the paint, but they weren't making those and they weren't establishing someone kind of working inside out. I thought that in the second game, uh, Kevon Looney did a lot better job of affecting the game inside the paint. He was 6 for 6. He scored 12 points. Um, just kind of giving them a, 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 a inside presence as far as throw the ball to somebody and maybe get a shot close into the basket. Whereas instead of having, you know, Steph or Wiggins try to drive and make runners and, and tough, you know, 15 foot jumpers. Um, I think with what's going on with clay right now, it's just that they're just making him uncomfortable. Uh, clay is not really known for shooting off the dribble or being a person who slashes to the basket and scores. Um, you know, Clay just likes to get the ball in his spots and just jack the shots up. And they're not really allowing him to catch and shoot as much to get in that rhythm. They're having him do kind of, you know, his B and C parts of his game. And, um, you know, that's just not what he's as strong as doing. And I think that's really what we see right now from Clay Thompson. I think what we're going to have to try to do if you're Golden State early in the next game to maybe run some of those just quick action where, you know, get a set a good screen and just have Clay come off the screen and just get past and just launch them. See if you can kind of get in a little bit more of a rhythm uh, without having to try to dribble and drive and manufacture off the dribble his offense and get more back to what he's comfortable doing. Um, Boston on the other side. Um, their role players, I think, have to do a little bit more. Uh, they're going to need Al Horford and Smart especially for some scoring punch. Um, you can't just expect Tatum and Brown to dominate the scoring. Uh, Golden State's defense is just too good for that. Uh, they will be able to key in on that and, and make the necessary adjustments. I think, again, Boston works better when they share the ball and they kind of include everybody and they don't go ISO watch Tatum and Brown centric. So I think that will probably be a, uh, something that they will probably try to do for the rest of the series is play with the continuity, keep the ball moving, uh, make the Warriors have to, you know, switch and change on defense as many times as they can. Uh, to see if they can get some favorable matchups. But uh, I think they will definitely play into the Warriors' hands if they go too much isolation with Tatum and Brown uh, being the primary people they're looking to score and not involving or incorporating the rest of their starters and guys off the bench to kind of get them in the game, get them involved, and make the Warriors have to play more of a team defense instead of just concentrating on two guys. Yeah. Uh, 
Quinn Snyder resigned as coach of the Utah Jazz after eight seasons. So uh, there's been a lot of speculation uh, coming out of Utah ever since their season ended early uh, this year in the playoffs. There's talk about Donovan Mitchell being unhappy, maybe time to break up him and Rudy Gobert and maybe start this thing all over again. Then you started hearing the rumblings of maybe Quinn Snyder not coming back. Maybe there's some um, some other underlying issues that maybe we haven't been uh, privy to yet that uh, really caused this. But from all accounts, it seemed like everybody was on board with Quinn Snyder returning, uh, but they just could not get a, a deal done or both sides could not come to a mutual agreement. So now Quinn Snyder is out here in these free agent coaching streets. Um, Danny Ainge in his first year moving over from the Celtics front office to the uh, Utah Jazz front office now has a, a really big issue on his hands because now he's got a disgruntled superstar and an organization that uh, is, is kind of, you know, in in doubt right now as far as what direction they're headed. Uh, so your thoughts on man Quinn Snyder first and foremost and uh, the mess that Danny Ainge now has on his hands? Well, if anybody can clean up a mess, it is Danny Ainge. Uh, just take a look at what happened in Boston. Um, he had a disgruntled superstar in Paul Pierce who basically said, get me some help or I'm out. And he got Garnett and Allen, which led to the OA championship. Um, so Danny Ainge does have experience in uh, navigating choppy waters and and uh, getting uh, the coaches, getting the coach that that'll work uh, with him, like he did with Doc Rivers, um, writing, writing, writing the ship, uh, sort of say. And so he's the right man to uh, navigate through this. Uh, I think Quinn Snyder was just burnt out, and I think. I think because he felt burnt out, you know, like I said, it's a lot of speculation. Uh, we don't really know the truth. And I th- think he felt like maybe his voice was just not falling on everybody's collective ears at this point. And so instead of middling and bottom, middling at the Western Conference and plateauing, he felt like maybe there's somebody that if this um, if they keep everybody together, if they keep the core together, maybe there's somebody that can get them over to the next hump. And I think because he may have felt burnt out, he's going to take a break from coaching because I think he would be, if there was any coaching vacancies, I mean, Charlotte still has theirs, but they're zeroing in on either Kenny Atkinson or Mike uh, D'Antoni. But I don't, aside from Charlotte and now Utah, I don't think there's really any other coaching um, vacancies. I think the Quinn Snyder thing kind of made Donovan Mitchell more unsettled than anything else. Uh, But I really... I really think that um, Danny Ainge, he'll either find a way to um, make moves to 
keep um, Donovan Mitchell happy, or he may just go towards um, retooling the team and finding ways to make moves, either flip Gobert for a deal or, hey, (laughs) I saw Sacramento Kings fans clamoring to give up the fourth pick for Donovan Mitchell at this point. So, um, but we know Sacramento is desperate for a winner anyways. Uh, It's been quite a long time since they've sniffed the playoffs. They got Mike Brown as a head coach now. Um, I think just the news of him going from the Warriors staff to... They don't don't learn, right? They they had um, Luke Walton. (laughs) They did. I mean, what's going to be the difference? I think the difference is Mike Brown has better. I think Mike Brown is more in tune with with uh, Steve Kerr because Mike Brown's also a pop disciple. Mm. Uh, Luke Walton was not. I mean, he he was off the. You could say he's off the Steve Kerr branch of that pop coaching tree, but. He's not a direct pop disciple like Mike Brown was. Because you remember Mike Brown was with the Spurs before he took the Cavs job. Mm -hmm. And the success he had with LeBron. And also, I mean, he had LeBron, of course. But he also did take that team also. He had some some success um, um, afterwards. But course you know the height of his head coaching was with LeBron but I think uh, and we know it's the Sacramento Kings and we know they don't they haven't learned much uh, with different owners uh, different executives at this point Um, but I do feel like him being with this championship core and being under Steve Kerr's wing, I think there has been a lot that went positive for him. I mean, he also coached the Nigerian basketball team doing up to the team you'll see in an exhibition. Go, uh, go figure there. So you have De'Aaron Fox, you have you have assets here. I mean, I don't think De'Aaron Fox is going to go anywhere, obviously, but uh, backcourt with Fox and Mitchell, that would be one fast backcourt and one high-scoring backcourt as well. But back to the Jazz here, um, there's going to be a lot of question marks, but uh, if you look at Angel's track record, he he had success with the Suns as well when he was there, and he's had success with the Celtics. So he he's the right man to get the job done. And, uh, you know, I know it's a lot of uncertainty for um, Utah and his fans, but I think they have the right man to get the job done through these uh, tough, tough situations. The Lakers are hoping that Darvin Ham is the right man to get the job done as they officially announced him as the new coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. 
So Darvin Ham coming in, uh, never been a head coach before. A long-time assistant, though, coming over from Milwaukee uh, to coach the Lakers. Um, talked about, you know, trying to keep Westbrook and Anthony Davis and LeBron together. Uh, talked about LeBron doing what LeBron's been trying not to do for the past 10 years, which is actually be the point guard of the team uh, from the beginning. And uh, just trying to establish a different type of, uh, he said, pace of play and some and some different things offensively to take advantage of those three guys' talents. Uh, so, how successful do you think Darvin Ham is going to be uh, as the Lakers head coach? Is this going to be a thing where, you know, if he struggles early, they may have a quick trigger, or you think they're going to have some patience with him? Um, I'm. I'm hoping they have patience with them. I'm really a. I really like the fact that he is a head coach finally. I wish it wasn't with the Lakers, but I'm glad he's a head coach though. Uh, but he's he's got um, toughness about him. I mean, that's one thing. He's always had, and I think being able to learn under uh, Mike Budenholzer in both Atlanta and Milwaukee, all along with the fact that he has he has that he's always had the toughness, and he's going to have Rasheed Wallace on the staff, which I think that's going to be entertaining, um, just because it's Rasheed Wallace. Um, I think he'll bring some toughness to the staff. Uh, the only concern I have is Russell Westbrook, obviously. Um, I think LeBron, of course, he doesn't, like you said, LeBron's been trying to avoid being, he, this is probably, this is one of the reasons why he left Miami because he did not want to be the one being the point guard from, from the word go. And and I think when LeBron started to be the de facto point guard like he was in Miami and Cleveland, that's why he left both times. Um, well, in Cleveland the first time in Miami. Um, then you have Russell Westbrook, and Darwin Ham's a defensive-minded guy, and Russell Westbrook doesn't play defense, which was the issue with Frank Vogel. And so, and Russell Westbrook was very quick to throw Frank Vogel under the bus after Vogel got fired. Uh, so, with the length of the contract, I don't think they're going. They have they would have the money if they did pull the trigger very quickly. Um, but you know the pressure of being. A Lakers, anything, whether it's player, coach, executive, um, it's always high stakes. And so you have to get, you see how quickly Frank Vogel was disposed of after they won the bubble title. Um, I think either if they keep Russell Westbrook on board, um, Russell Westbrook will probably be the one they would try to get rid of first. 
before they pull the trigger on Darvin Ham. Um, I know they're actively trying to find somebody to take Russell Westbrook. I know they've they always love to throw the Charlotte Hornets into the Russell Westbrook mix, which I definitely hope the Hornets don't do because they don't need that. Um, but I think I think they'll give him the chance, and if the only way he gets disposed early, if it's a complete and utter disaster with everybody healthy, if the Lakers don't get off to um, I think if they're well below 500 or even at 500 just to start off with, then, then they could be in dire straits. Um, we've talked about Charlotte looking like they're getting real close to either D'Antoni or Atkinson. What do you think would be the advantage of either coach um, and what do you think that the Hornets are weighing at this particular point before they make this decision? I think they – I think it's uh, – it's going to be philosophies, really. I think with Mike D'Antoni, we know the seven seconds or less, the – if he gets the right personnel, which I think Charlotte does have, they have the outside shooters, they have the small bigs, they have they have um, a guy who can shoot and distribute a lamella ball. They have the superstar. Um, and you, the Hornets do like – they like to run. So I think that makes it – Exciting for Mike D'Antoni. The problem is, as with every Mike D'Antoni team, the lack of defense. Um, we know we've always said his name should be Mike Antoni because there's no D. Um, so the problem with that is. As long as they don't have a guy who's focused on isolating the ball like Carmelo did in New York, because Carmelo killed the whole by D'Antoni era in New York, because he just would not conform to that style of play. And even when and when Linsanity even happened, and the Knicks were winning. With the with the facilitator, the guy who was able to take the city by storm, and Jeremy Lin, the man who was stewing and jealous of that success was obviously Carmelo Anthony. So that's one of the re- if you don't have a player like that with the Hornets, which they don't, because Lamelo loves to. He loves to make – I think he loves making the flashier pass more than scoring, but he does it all anyway. Um, that will be successful, but the thing that played the Hornets this season was the lack of defense. So you can really say that the, these young Hornets would thrive under 
D'Antoni's system. It would be an exciting it'd be an exciting brand of basketball, but you would kind of still have possibly the same exact issues that you have with James Borrego. So that brings in Kenny Atkinson. Kenny Atkinson is a more defensive-minded coach. Uh, he prioritizes defense. And if you want to fix what – if you want to fix what was plaguing Charlotte in the last two years and, and uh, getting to the playing round and then not showing up in the playing game itself – uh, it was their lack of defense, and especially uh, in the Indiana series, in the Indiana game, and then the Atlanta game, they did not show up in either one. So, Kenny Atkinson would probably get the team to focus more on the defensive side of the ball, and that could take away from that exciting brand of offensive uh, basketball that. Hornets fans have been accustomed over the last couple of years. So it's going to be basically a set of philosophies between the two squad, between the two coaches that Charlotte is looking for. Um, I think if they do want to, um, if they want to sustain some success and get a little bit forward, I I would say the results have favored Mike D'Antoni. Um, even though you likely won't get the defense that you won't get the defense that you are looking for, but uh, sales tickets and and Mike could use a, a, a high octane exciting version of the Hornets to sell tickets, and if right. they make the playoffs playing that way, he'll take a first round exit at least for two yeah. seasons. Right, and then, and then, um, I guess the question will be: Does he want to go further than the first round? Because um, yeah, the offense will sell tickets. I mean, they're going to sell tickets regardless. Um, but if um, Kenny Atkinson gets hired, can he get can he get um, the mellow to buy into defense because if it was Lonzo, I wouldn't have, it wouldn't be a problem because Lonzo plays defense. The mellow doesn't play defense like Lonzo does. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Lamelo Rozier, they don't play that much defense either way. So that's going to be definitely something to look out for if Atkinson gets hired. But, and like I said, if you go with D'Antoni, that'll, that'll uh, sell a tick. That'll sell even more tickets than, than what's already being sold. So, and it'll be a very exciting brand of basketball. And I think the Hornets win more games as a result. And they'll just do it by outscoring their opponents if they do. So that's basically the news that's going on right now. We got into the, uh, you know, the quarter pole, the baseball. 
with your Mets up comfortably so far in the NL East. And not a lot of close hey. races at all going on in Major League Baseball as far as divisions. You told me they would fall off last month, last month. <laughs> but they in survived. The, in the, uh, I mean, it's still, I mean, June just started. So, I mean, I can't get too excited just yet. So, let, let me talk. Let me talk at the end of September. And if the Mets are still up, then I'll be happy. So, um, but seriously, the. The way they've done it uh, without the Grom, without Scherzer, Tyler McGill got to a hot start that he went down. But Carlos Carrasco just won his seventh game last night. Um, he's tied for the most wins in the majors. He struck out 10. Um, he's really kind of just been the key cog in solidifying um, this patchwork rotation. And you can just tell they're having fun. I mean, Pete Alonzo's smashing home runs, driving in runs. Eduardo Escobar just had the first Met cycle in 10 years. Um, but at the same time, they have to keep winning because the Braves are starting to hit their stride um, as they did last year at this time. Um, the Yankees are dominating the AL right now which is going to be a very exciting Subway series coming up in a few weeks. Um, I, it's going to be an electric atmosphere. I think they're starting the first set of games in the Bronx. So um, it's going to be very fun to watch. Uh, but I know the last time we talked about baseball, we were talking about how New York and L.A. were having the hottest teams, but one of the L.A. teams has fallen off so badly that uh, they lost their manager. Yeah, the Angels' 12-game losing streak uh, going from first to down in the dumps of the AOS. So, Joe Madden, the man who gave us Shohei Atani, unleashed him on the world on both sides as a pitcher and a hitter is now going to be replaced, and I don't know if, if that changes the approach with Shohei going forward, but the Angels are definitely trying to get these two guys into the playoffs. I'm pretty sure baseball has got their fingers crossed as well to get yeah. their, you know, two of their biggest stars in, in that showcase this year. And Especially uh, with the playoffs, too. Right, and unfortunately, Joe Madden is the – Joe, Joe Madden and Joe Girardi are our first two casualties uh, of the baseball season as far as managerial uh, changes go. So uh, some teams are not waiting around to to uh, to get in front of these things and looking ahead till next year. Uh, but the Angels definitely made their move for this year because they are trying to go for it, get in the playoffs, and kind of reverse this the stigma that they have of overpaying guys and never uh, having anything in the postseason to show for it. So, and to case in point, Albert Pujols currently Mike Trout, and you would hate to see a generational talent, two generational talents like Trout and Otani wasted um, with the Angels. So, um, Phil Nevins taking over as the interim manager, and. And, yeah, 12 games good. I don't know what has happened. Um, 
for me, seeing Noah Syndergaard and his petty self, kind of seeing him kind of going on the team with this losing streak kind of makes me happy a little bit. So um, I just don't like I, – I probably wouldn't be so against Noah Syndergaard if he didn't continue to take his petty shots at the Mets. Um, when their pitcher had a no-hitter, he kind of took a jab at him saying this is what a real no-hitter looks like, uh, basically – Downplaying the Mets combined no hitter earlier in the season. So, um, anytime you see uh, Syndergaard kind of have a bad outing with uh, his new team while his old team is thriving, it's kind of satisfying a little bit. So, all right. Well, we've got the Yankees up in the NL East, we've got Ms. V's Minnesota Twins up in the Central. Of course, Houston doing their thing out west. The National League, we've got the Mets over in the Central. We've got the most intriguing race between the Brewers and the Cardinals. And then out west, the Dodgers and the Padres uh, are, you know, within shouting distance of each other. And the Giants as well. They're kind of trying to make it a three-team race. But uh, there's not a lot of intrigue so far in the baseball season as far as the division races go so it looks like it'll come down to the wild cards uh, as we get later in the season but uh, we hit one of the uh, uh, mile markers in the season Memorial Day and the next one will be 4th of July and I'll check the standings again and see who's on top when we get to 4th of July (laughs) hopefully the Mets are still there so at this point Dwayne I'm going to turn it over to you sir for your final thoughts and your shout outs Oh, yeah, so um, it's always a good time to be back talking sports with you, Don. So thank you once again for having me, and it is always great to be be on and talking everything sports with you. Shout-out to the CSPN. Uh, Shout-out to the Rasselcast family and, and – um, it's really kind of. It's really just been a good summer so far. I mean, um, my final thought was originally going to be about the Angels and their twelve games kid, but since we covered that, and ironically, because AOS, the rest of AOS is so bad, the Angels are still in second. So go figure. Um, so my new final thought would have to go to. I would say let's talk spring football. So uh, the USFL is winding down. They are in week, you're approaching week nine, actually. So, um, uh, so yeah, with the, when I did take a look at the standings, the Birmingham Stallions are still the, best team in the USFL. They are undefeated. They're actually 8-0. and um, They're 8-0 and right now. Then they are also they clinch the playoff spot and they clinch the South Division uh, title. The New Jersey Generals they lost the first game. They've won seven straight since then. And 
Then you have Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Stars, who are 5-3. and three. Uh, They're making a late push toward the playoffs. The top four teams in the league would get in, and then – and then you have the championship, which will be in Canton, Ohio, at the Hall of Fame Stadium. Um, and then, so yeah, so there's three games left. You have, well, two games left now. And then the regular season ends on June 19th. You'll have the playoffs, which start on uh, the 26th and 27th. And then the the twenty sixth, twenty fifth, and twenty sixth. I should say. I'm sorry. And then the uh, USFL championship um, that will be Fourth of July weekend, uh, July third, actually in Canton, Ohio. So the postseason will be in Canton, and then and then the USFL bowl will be July third, right? before the 4th of July. So um, I would say this season has been successful so far. Uh, the viewership has actually been a lot higher. I was actually looking in the ratings. Uh, the ratings have been pretty decent um, compared, com- very comparable to the XFL before the pandemic hit. And then, and then, um, And what am I trying to say? Yeah, uh, comparable to the XFL. So I think it has the stability to stay. Um, it has a staying power. And with the new XFL 3.0 coming in 2023, it's going to be very interesting to, to see the, um, the what's the word I'm looking for, the competition between the, between the two teams, so two leagues, I should say. Well, that was a good experiment for them. Glad that it was successful. Just shows you the um, appetite that the sports fan has for football, man. Um, if you put it on TV and it's at least passable, people will watch it. Uh, for me, uh, my final thought uh, probably has to be my buddy Ross Chastain. Um, I asked him a question about etiquette, and uh, when it comes to his racing at the 600, uh, the sound quality wasn't the best, so I didn't get a chance to upload it, but it actually came into fruition this weekend. Uh, the 600, he told me that, you know, he's gotten this far by being aggressive, but here at the cup series that he's going to have to learn how to harness his aggression, know when to use it because these guys up at the series aren't going to, um, you know, basically stand for him beating and banging on them, um, you know, excessively. So you fast forward to this Sunday's race at gateway and Ross Chastain gets into not only Denny Hamlin, but also chase Elliott ruins both guys days and for the rest of the race both guys are out there out to make his day a living hell so yeah ross uh, chastain kind of battling a little bit of um you know fighting what got him there versus what's going to keep him there 
and uh, just trying to figure it out as a guy who's gone from racing, you know, back in the teens to, you know, every once in a while being in the top 10 to now being a guy who's won two races and constantly in the mix every weekend with a very good car. Uh, he's learning that, you know, these guys up front don't really like to be raced hard. Uh, and they only want to be raced hard when the checkered flag is, is within sight. And that's a different type of mentality that he has and that he's used to get himself to this upper echelon of stock car racing. So um, going through a little bit of growing pains right now. Uh, Ross Chastain still running well, still finishing in the top 10 or whatever. But yeah, he's just going to have to try to figure out how not to make so many enemies. Uh, on the racetrack because uh, these guys will take their time and they will cost him when it matters the most to him. And that is something that uh, that you don't want to deal with as a race car driver is having people, multiple people with issues with you because uh, everybody's looking to take you out uh, and ruin your day when you think you've got something brewing going. So. Um, we'll see how that transpires going forward, but hopefully, um, you know, it doesn't take away what's made him so entertaining and such a, a, a gust of fresh air for the sport is that he's not afraid to race hard and he's not afraid to go door to door for seventh place, uh, on lap 75, um, you know, of a 400 lap race. So, um, just got to kind of get that fine edge where, you know, he's picking his battles and, and being aggressive, but just doing it wisely uh, from here on out. Do you think he is remorseful for what's happened? Yeah, I think he is because, like I said, when I asked him about it, uh, he was, you know, that's the first thing he said. It's like, you know, it's what's gotten me here, but it's not going to be the thing that's going to keep me here. He's like, I'm going to have to learn how to clean it up. Uh, because these, because you know, it, the respect that these guys um, command is, you know, something that I, I'm trying to earn, and you know, so they race me the same way that you know I race them, and and then on Sunday he goes out and just bangs into people. So, um, yeah, but I think he definitely was remorseful about it. I don't think that this is something that he. He definitely knows it's something that he's got to get a handle on. He's just, you know, like I said before, this is not how he got here. It's not by, you know, letting the guy go by and taking 15, 20 laps and running back down and pass him again. You know, it's, you know, fighting tooth and nail for every spot and and just being hard-nosed and aggressive. So some people don't like it. I think it's very entertaining, and I make sure I – when I get a chance to, to meet him and talk to him, I always tell him that that I, I, hey man, I think it's entertaining. I think it's what NASCAR needs more of uh, because right. it, it is racing. It's not riding around until the end. Um, yeah. But we'll That's see how it. see how Ross handles things going forward. Uh, he's got a good team, good car. He's going to be in the playoffs, uh, so we'll see uh, what he can do if he can add to his win total and uh, and be a real factor to 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 try to win a championship this year. Uh, but thank you, as always, Dwayne, here on Another Score on the CSPN. I greatly appreciate you working with my schedule and uh, being available to uh, to talk with me when I, when I get the free time. Uh, try to keep this on an every-two-week basis, I guess, right now, just due to the way the playoffs are working. But sometimes it doesn't always work out that way, but you're, you're very flexible, and I cannot appreciate and thank you enough 
for that. Thank you to everybody here on the CSPN. Please support the sponsors over at CSPN.us. Click on the tab that says keep our podcast free at the top of the page. Uh, support Amazon.com. Do some shopping. Father's Day is rapidly approaching. Buy your dad something that he might like. Um, and uh, do it through CSPN. Get something for your dad. Support your favorite podcast network at the same time. It's a win-win. So for my co-host, Dwayne, I'm your host, Don DeLorente, and now you know the score.